This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for those who care for us. I'm Paul Evans, and this edition of Airing Pain has been supported with a grant from the Mirianog Trust. It's well recognised that pain can be alleviated by familiar contact with people. I've put in an application to actually try and look at the mechanisms that will underlie social interactions and relief from pain. We're making this programme in week five of the COVID-19 lockdown, thus at the end of April 2020, at a time when research for a vaccine, diagnostic and antibody tests are at the forefront of the scientific community. So, whilst all these interviews were conducted before the present crisis, I want to focus on the role of research and in particular the many, sometimes surprising to me at least, disciplines that come together to make living with chronic pain more manageable. According to Versus Arthritis, fibromyalgia affects about 5% of the UK population. The name means pain in the muscles and fibrous connective tissues, the ligaments and tendons, but it's not actually a joint condition but a syndrome with a set of signs and symptoms that include moderate to severe fatigue or lack of energy, sleep disturbances, headaches, decreased endurance for exercise, widespread muscle aches, and much, much more. As such, many people are treated under the rheumatology umbrella, a rheumatologist being a doctor who specialises in diagnosing and treating arthritis and related conditions. A neurologist, on the other hand, specialises in treating diseases of the nervous system. Download or read online Pain Concerns' excellent leaflet on neuropathic pain to find out more about that. So, if fibromyalgia is a rheumatic condition, what interest does it have for a neurologist? Dr Claudia Sommer is Professor of Neurology at the University of Würzburg in Germany and one of her research interests is fibromyalgia. A colleague of mine, an anesthesiologist, head of the pain clinic next door, who had many fibromyalgia patients, and so one day he asked me, we must find out something about the cause of fibromyalgia. And indeed, we were thinking of rheumatological causes, and he had some hypotheses along these lines. So with him, I started to look at cytokines, which are immune products, how do I say it, pro-inflammatory products of the body, and we had the hypothesis that these were increased in the fibromyalgia patients. This came only partially true in the end, like, like all the hypotheses, they may be true for part of the patients. But after I had started this research, I became very intrigued because it's uh, such a I know it's a devastating disorder, but it's also a fascinating disorder because it has so many aspects. There are so many open questions. This is what intrigued me to dig into this. So is fibromyalgia a neuropathic condition? That's a question we cannot answer yet. What we can say is that it shares a number of features with other neuropathic conditions. For example, loss of nerve fibers in the skin, disturbed function of nerve fibers and their tracts, and 
changes in brain structure and function, but that can also happen in non-neuropathic conditions. I'm confused. What do you mean by loss of nerve fibres in the skin? I mean, my, my knowledge, as small as it is, is that fibromyalgia is just a brain condition. It's just a misbalance of chemicals or something. This is what most people thought until a few years ago. But then we and others examined groups of fibromyalgia patients very closely. And we found that, indeed, these patients have reduced nerve fibers in their skin and and the remaining fibers obviously don't function as well as they did. And when we first published it, some people didn't believe it, of course. Others said, oh, what a great finding. Finally, somebody is showing something for fibromyalgia. And then we were very happy that several other groups from different parts of the world, yeah, so we were in Germany, but then a group from Italy, from Spain, Greece, from the US, they all had very similar findings in, in the very short time. So I think the time was just ripe for this finding that there is, at least in a subgroup of patients with fibromyalgia, a peripheral nerve basis to this syndrome. So do you think that's the cause of fibromyalgia or the result of having fibromyalgia? Again, I don't know. As in human research, it's very difficult to see cause result because you only describe something. I find it difficult to see it as the result, which doesn't mean that this cannot be, but it's difficult to imagine how a pain syndrome that initiates in the brain would lead to loss of nerve fibers in the skin. For me, it's easier to understand it the other way around, that there is some defect. It may be genetic, it may be of the environment, it may be immunological, that damages nociceptors, and that this, together with other factors, triggers this whole syndrome. You're going to have to explain to me now what you mean by nociceptors. What is nociceptive pain as opposed to neuropathic pain? Two different things. A nociceptor is the word that we use for a peripheral nerve and its nerve cell, so the neuron, that signals pain. And we have two types of them. We call them C fibers and A delta fibers, and they serve different functions, but they both signal pain. So when we activate them, you notice pain, <laughs> and we call them nociceptors. The term nociceptive pain means pain induced by activation of a nociceptor. So for example, if I put my hand on a hot plate, this will activate my heat nociceptors and I will feel pain. Neuropathic pain, by contrast, is pain caused by an injury disease somewhere in the nervous system. So if I injure a nerve, for example, by having an accident, and then these nerve fibers are hyperexcitable, I can have pain without any stimulus from the outside. And this is what we call neuropathic pain. Okay, going back to the nociceptors and fibromyalgia, is what you're saying that an injury to somebody's, say, hand or leg or limb or anywhere else, that may have started the fibromyalgia? 
We have no evidence for this, and in fact, this has been looked at. There have been large statistics on whether there is a connection between accidents and fibromyalgia, and the, the connection was negative. What has been shown some time ago was a connection between numerous myofascial pains and fibromyalgia. So myofascial pain is, for example, the usual neck pain you get when you sit for too long or yeah. type too long. So it seems that people who have these kinds of pain, which we would generally consider nociceptive because we don't move properly and we, we stimulate our muscle nociceptors the wrong way. So people who have these kinds of pain, they have a higher risk of developing fibromyalgia. Dr. Claudia Sommer, Professor of Neurology at the University of Würzburg in Germany. For many people living with chronic or persistent pain conditions, myself included, we are aware of current treatment, that is, what we're using now to manage our conditions. But we're ignorant of the work researchers and scientists are doing away from the public glare, and also of the many different disciplines involved, including, to my surprise, anthropology. If, like me, in my ignorance, you associate anthropologists with archaeologists and prehistorians in television series about the origins and ascent of man, you may be surprised to know that they can work very much in the present. Dr Rachel Guberman-Hill is Professor of Health and Anthropology at Bristol University, where she's also Director of the Elizabeth Blackwell Institute for Health Research. And she's a social anthropologist. We look at what people do in their everyday lives and that might be their everyday lives in their homes or their everyday lives working in a hospital or their everyday lives for instance in living with pain. So what we as anthropologists would do is bring the research techniques that we would use in all of anthropology and apply them into a pain and healthcare context. So we do things like chat with people, have conversations with people about how, how they live with their pain and the history of their pain. We do that in interviews and we do that in focus groups. We also do research that involves a researcher spending time maybe in a clinic or a hospital, watching what people do and how decisions are made about care and all that kind of thing. That sounds a bit like time and motion to me, almost. It is a bit, because when we're, we're collecting that kind of information, the researcher will write down what they see, and we'll look at that information and bring it all together to explain why people do what they do and how people do what they do. And when we get it published, that means that decision-makers and people who write guidance about care will take that research on board and look at it and see how it can best inform guidelines for, for healthcare provision. For instance, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence looks at qualitative research, some of which will be anthropological in an approach, and uses that to inform the guidelines that they, they write. So largely what we'd do when we'd apply for funding is we'd get together quite a big group of researchers, usually people with different backgrounds, and we'd work together because we've identified that there's a gap in the research evidence. And when we work together and find there's a gap, we then have to design a research project and we work for many months usually to design a research project. And the kind of people we'd involve would be statisticians, health psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists, pain doctors, surgeons, 
etc., etc. And we all come together as a group, and we then write a, a proposal for research. As I said, that will take many months. What we do then is we'll submit that to an organisation like the National Institute for Health Research. They then have a committee of experts who drill down on that research plan and look at whether it's needed, whether it's robust, whether it's appropriate, and provide comments and feedback to us. And then we go through a long process in which the funder makes a decision about whether or not they would fund our proposed research project. So it takes a long time from deciding that there's a gap in knowledge to actually starting a research project with funding. So how do you find those gaps in knowledge? That's a really good question. <laughs> what don't you know? Yeah, what don't we know? We do something called systematic literature review. And we have experts in, in pulling together existing published literature into one place so that we know whether there's gaps in the existing knowledge or not. And only when we know that there is a gap and there's a need for more knowledge should we really then be thinking about doing more research. Just explain to me what qualitative research means. Qualitative research is research that usually happens on a small scale. It's interested in understanding why people do what they do or think what they think and how people do what they do and think what they think. So a qualitative researcher is interested not in numbers but usually in words and that means that a qualitative researcher usually has a privilege of inviting people to come to interviews and focus groups and talking with them and for instance in pain we would hold focus groups to talk with people about their experience of living with pain and their experience of, of finding healthcare for that pain or what they've done in their family to live with pain and those kind of questions. And that's what qualitative research essentially is in a nutshell. Why is it called qualitative research? Because asking opinions to me is not non-qualitative, but equally as important as numbers. So we call it qualitative because it, it's, it's different to quantitative. So quantitative research is about numbers. Uh, so a clinical trial where we ask people to fill in questionnaires and you know, assign scores of 1 to 10 or 1 to 5 against certain things, that generates number information. But qualitative research gives us information that isn't about numbers. It's about thoughts and feelings and words and... It's about what we feel, how we live. How we feel and, as you said, opinions as well, but, but also what we do and why we do those things. So when we're doing qualitative research, we're asking people to talk with us in, in, in some depth. And that's a great privilege. It can take a couple of hours to do a qualitative research interview. And we're not judging those people in any way. We're simply asking them what, what their life is like and how they live and what their health care has been like. We also do research with people who provide healthcare. So we've done research with surgeons and we've done research with uh, GPs, for instance. So a particularly interesting piece of, of research we did a, a few years ago was to find out why GPs prescribed or did not prescribe opioid medication for people living with joint pain. And so we interviewed 27 practicing GPs, general practitioners, and we asked them about the kind of medication they prescribed and why they prescribed it. We spoke with them about the patients that they saw, and we spoke with them about their background and their training and their experience. And this was great, because GPs were, were really willing to talk with us, and that was a great privilege. The thing which we found really interesting from, from that project was that some previous research had 
suggested that GPs were reluctant to prescribe certain kinds of opioid medication because they were worried about addiction, tolerance, and diversion of those medications. And so we explored that in interviews. What we found was that GPs were thinking about those issues in some detail, but actually what influenced their prescribing most was their own professional experience of prescribing opioid medication. For instance, whether they'd had experience in the past of working with groups who prescribed that kind of medication or not. So we then published that kind of finding in a, an academic journal. And in an academic publication, it, it sounds like it's something that's going to be very dense and difficult to read, but we try to write these things as, as clearly as possible. And that's published in a journal so that other scientists can read our work and know that we've done it in a robust, researchy way. It's gone through peer review. The people who read it can then know that what we've done is actually a decent piece of research. And then it's up to the outside world to decide what they do with that research finding. The peer review process in research means that research that's out there in the public realm is trustworthy. Dr Rachel Guberman-Hill, Professor of Health and Anthropology and Director of the Elizabeth Blackwell Institute for Health Research at the University of Bristol. So, from the study of what people do in their everyday lives, I like to think of it as the macro, to the micro, the study of what happens within people's brains and nervous systems. Dr Bridget Lum is a Professor of Neuroscience at the University of Bristol. She's president of the Physiological Society and her particular interest is in the understanding of the basic mechanisms of pain, in particular how we make the transition from acute pain to chronic pain. Acute pain is that immediate pain of putting your hand too close to the fire. It's about the severity of the pain and its time course. Chronic pain is classified by the International Association for the Study of Pain of pain that lasts for more than three months. And a huge proportion of people will suffer from chronic pain at some point in their lives. It's about 40% of the population. That's astounding. It's astounding. So three months after the initial injury that caused the acute pain, where that injury has healed or should have healed, pain carries on. Pain carries on. A process that was set up by that initial acute pain, the damage, the injury, has set up changes in the brain which mean that the brain no longer reacts normally to pain. There is no noxious stimulus, there is no injury. It can have resolved, but the individual might still be feeling ongoing pain, which could last for years. So what's going on there, then? Well, if you answered that question, (laughs) you'd, you'd probably win the Nobel Prize. We know that, when I say noxious stimulus, this is an input from the body in response to an injury arrives in the spinal cord as its first point of contact, and then that information is transmitted up to the brain. That initial process whereby the injury, the signal from that injury enters the spinal cord, begins to set up a process that we call sensitisation. And it's that that can continue once the injury has actually resolved. So the brain is actually reading what's happened. Yeah. In the wrong way. In the wrong way. It's very akin, actually. There are interesting parallels, and I think this is an area that will become a focus of attention, is that the way the brain learns, it has an experience, and it then has an expectation. So when the stimulus arrives again, it expects to experience in a particular way. In most people, if there's a mismatch between the stimulus and what they experience, 
they resolve it, relearn it. They say, ah, so when this happens, I now feel this. I don't feel my previous expectation. Is there a pain centre? If you could look inside my brain, my mind, and I'm in pain, where will it be? We don't know. If one looks in imaging studies in humans, for example, there is a network which classically lights up in painful situations. But that same network lights up if you apply a novel stimulus. So is it a pain matrix or is it a salience network? Is it something that detects the unexpected? Pain is a hugely complex experience. It's not just about the sensory experience. It's not just about ouch. It has emotional context. It triggers learning and memory. It triggers release of hormones. It makes changes in your blood pressure, your heart rate. And it has an emotional context. One can map the pain pathway, for example, from the periphery, from, from the hand, let's say, into the spinal cord, up to the brain. It'll go to the thalamus. It will go to uh, the somatosensory cortex. If you delete parts of the somatosensory cortex, you don't remove pain, chronic pain. So as far as we know, there is no pain centre, and it probably relies on interaction between different centres within the brain. And context can change it so much. I mean, social context can change it so much. I mean, I, I've just put in an application, for example, to actually try and look at the mechanisms that will underlie social interactions and relief from pain. Because if we can understand the mechanisms for that, we can perhaps tap into that. I mean, it's, it's well recognised that pain can be alleviated by familiar contact with people. How does the brain do that? The brain's got to be doing it. Professor Bridget Lum. Well, familiar contact with people, social interaction or lack of it during the COVID-19 lockdown could have serious repercussions, mental and physical, for those not just with chronic pain, but the population at large. Going back to an earlier edition of Airing Pain, number 109, which is still available to download along with all editions from the Pain Concern website, we focused on the European League Against Rheumatism's revised recommendations for the management of fibromyalgia and the role of exercise in the management of all arthritis-related conditions. In that edition, we explored the Walk With Ease programme, developed by Versus Arthritis, the Arthritis Foundation and Aberdeen University. Just put Walk With Ease UK into your search engine to find out more. Now, the Escape Pain Rehabilitation Programme is another UK-wide evidence-based programme for people affected with osteoarthritis in their hips or knees. David Easton is physiotherapist based in Cardigan in West Wales, working for the Howell Var University Health Board, where he's clinical champion for Escape Pain. So Escape Pain is an acronym that's a bit of a mouthful and it stands for Enabling Self-Management and coping with arthritic pain through exercise. It's really giving people some knowledge and some skills about how best to adapt to the condition to minimise the impact, enabling them to become more active, reduce their impact and improve their quality of life. Well, the one thing about quality of life and exercise is we all know, at least I think I know, that exercise is good for me. But exercise is not 
thrashing yourself in the gym. No, it's not. And I think this is where a lot of people with chronic joint pain struggle. They sometimes hear this advice and think, right, I'll get all my energies together and I'm going to give it a go and I'm going to try my hardest. But if you take that approach, people tend to overdo it too quickly. They won't understand their current ability and compare themselves to how they used to be before the problem. And what Escape Pain does is it gives them the opportunity to change that perspective and use exercise as a strategy to reduce their stiffness, improve their mobility and over time improve their function and their overall exercise tolerance. It may not necessarily be to the level that they used to be or where they'd like it to be in an ideal world, but it's a better place. And there's a real skill to be able to exercise when you've got persisting pain, and that takes time and practice. When you use exercise as a, as a strategy for joint pain, it's about choosing when to do it, how much to do of it, and to keep it up on a frequent basis. It's not always choosing to do it just because you feel like it. It's knowing how to do that. And for me, I, certainly listening to people, how they have used exercise and the skills on the Escape Pain programme, they learn how to use that effectively, and that's a process. How do you get that through to people, to somebody who knows, historically, exercise has hurt me? I think that's what's so great about the programme and why I'm a strong advocate because as a physiotherapist I meet a lot of people on a one-to-one -one basis and I have these conversations and sometimes I can see the face and the screen come up and think, yeah, I haven't really reached them. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time and it's not always what I say or what, what I do, it's the group environment where people can see other people coming at it from a different perspective and sharing that perspective and thinking, OK, well, maybe I'll give it a go. And learning how to then, over the six weeks, refine that. So sometimes they'll come along quite well and they'll have negative experience. But I don't see that negative experience in terms of an increase in their symptoms as negative. It's actually a learning opportunity to think, at the moment, that's too much. So how can I do that differently? I know you're going to say it's a successful scheme, but is it? Certainly the research evidence base and why it's become so prominent and it's a national programme and won an award within NHS England is because the research base is very, very strong. It was a randomised control trial that had 418 people comparing people with usual primary care and the escape pain programme. And the outcomes were recorded six months, 12 months, 18 months and 30 months following the programme. And under those conditions, they were able to demonstrate that there were sustained benefits for people that attended the programme. Physiotherapist David Easton of Howellvar University Health Board. Well, whilst walking in groups may be a great way of getting and enjoying your daily exercise, as we're making this edition of Airing Pain at the end of April 2020 during the COVID-19 lockdown, UK government guidance stipulates just one form of exercise a day for example, a run, walk or cycle, alone or with members of your household. Now, of course, all this will change. It may even have changed by the time you're listening to this edition of Airing Pain, so please do check with your own National Assembly or Government guidelines. However, whilst Escape Pain's 290-plus class programmes around the UK are currently suspended, there's an online version and plenty of resources at escape-pain.org slash escape-pain-online 
The Walk With Ease programme, whilst it recognises that walking can be done in groups and with company, it can also be done on your own. In fact, they're currently producing an audiobook for people to listen to as they walk. I'll just remind you that whilst we, in Pain Concern, believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. You can find all the resources to support the management of chronic pain, including details of videos, leaflets, all editions of Airing Pain and Pain Matters magazine and links mentioned in this programme at painconcern.org.uk. Well, I want to return to the subject of fibromyalgia to end this edition of Airing Pain. Professor Claudia Zoma tantalisingly left us with who might be of higher risk of developing fibromyalgia but I can't leave without asking the one question that people with the condition really want asked. Will her research lead the way to better management or even a cure for fibromyalgia? At the moment, all this gives us is a better explanation why the few drugs that we have for fibromyalgia pain, why they work. Because these are drugs we use in neuropathic pain, like amitriptyline, pregabalin, duloxetine, these are the drugs that have been shown to have some effect in the big clinical trials, and they come from neuropathic pain. So that fibromyalgia has a neuropathic component makes sense when we know that these drugs that are used to treat neuropathic pain also work to some extent in fibromyalgia. But the more important question would be, can we in some way reverse these findings. So can we make the nerve degeneration stop or even induce regeneration? People are working on it. And there might be drugs out in the next five to 10 years. 